Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink and this is the Bookseller Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 11th edition of the Bookseller Podcast. The Bookseller has been the magazine of the book trade since 1858, reporting on everything from the publication of The Mill on the Floss to the news last week that Lee Child's latest novel, Blue Moon, has roared to the top of the charts in its first week of sales. In this edition, we're talking to Derek Owuzu about his book, That Reminds Me. I mean, the book would be a lot bigger than it is now if, um, obviously, my editor Tom didn't say, OK, we need to take this out. <laughs> and I'll be joined by Alice O'Keefe and Tom Tivnan, who will take us through the big books of November. Patrick Neal from Jaffe and Neal will be our guest for Meet the Indie. And we'll play out with a clip from Be My Guest by Priya Basil. We begin as guests, every single one of us, helpless little creatures whose every need must be attended to, who for a long time can give nothing or very little back. First, let me introduce you to this show's contributors and experts. We've got Alice O'Keefe and Tom Tivnan from The Bookseller. Hello. Hello. And with me, as he is every month, is The Bookseller's chief exec, Nigel Roby. Hello. Alice, thank you for coming in. Um, what's your take on November? So November is a great month, Cathy. My book of the month for November is the latest from the wonderful Elizabeth Strout, whose new novel is Olive Again. And it's technically a sequel to the novel that won the Pulitzer Prize back in 2009, Olive Kitteridge. But actually, it works as a standalone. So you can mm-hmm. absolutely read this if you haven't read Olive Kitteridge. Although if you haven't, I really do recommend that you read it as well. The protagonist is Olive And she lives in a small town called Crosby in Maine. And in this book, she is growing older. She's now in her 80s. She's a retired maths teacher. Um, She's widowed after her first husband, Henry, died. And she is one of the most wonderful fictional creations, I think. She's cantankerous. She's brusque. She's grumpy. She says exactly what she thinks all the time. (laughs) Um, And the novel unfolds um, in a sort of series of interlinked stories is probably the best way that I can uh, explain it. So Olive, in these stories, Olive is sometimes the central character and she's sometimes a peripheral character in the stories of her friends and neighbours. And Elizabeth Strout is the most wonderful storyteller and her writing, it's very economical, almost sparse, but it's so rich and dense with emotional truth and she can sort of sum up a whole character in just a few sentences like no other author I can think of really. As I've said, Olive is is growing older and this novel deals with um, the really big themes sort of grief, loneliness, loss, regret. She's sort of, she's becoming aware of her own mortality really, which makes it sound very downbeat and it's not downbeat (laughs) at all. It's really joyful. Mm -hmm. And this for me is one of the standout books of 2019 and I will bet you that it will appear on nearly all the books of the year roundups, you Mm -hmm. know, that the big, um, the nationals do at the end of the year. And if I were to do one, it would definitely be on mine. Ah, lovely. I think you were also taken with The Tenth Muse. Yes. Now this, the most important thing I had to tell you about this novel is that it made me a maths phobe <laughs> absolutely love maths and wish that I'd sort of paid more attention at school. It's interesting, it's Catherine Chung's second novel. She's an American um, writer, but it's her first to be published in the UK, so it's being treated um, very much as a debut. And it's 
really a glimpse into the beauty and elegance of mathematics, sort of at its very highest level, which, to be fair to myself, you don't get anywhere near um, at high school, by Catherine, who is this elderly woman looking back on her life. And she is and has been a really gifted mathematician, very ambitious. And sort of the main part of the novel, she wants to solve something called the Ryman hypothesis, which is a real mathematical problem that was first posed in 1900. And just very briefly, it predicts a meaningful pattern hidden deep within the seemingly chaotic distribution of prime numbers, which may sound very dry and dull. But honestly, the novel, it's Catherine's story. And her attempts to sort of solve this mathematical problem, which we learn is actually tied up with her own family history and so her very identity. But it's also a novel about a woman in a man's world. Until so recently, women were just pushed to the very edges of mathematical and scientific um, research. And what I particularly enjoyed about this novel is that um, the author weaves through the stories of real-life female mathematicians and scientists. And my particular favourite is a lady called uh, Maria Mayer, who actually won the greatest prize in physics in 1948 for the discovery of the subatomic structure of an atom. The local paper paper ran the story and the headline was San Diego housewife wins Nobel Prize. (laughs) That's, you know, how she was perceived. So I really recommend this novel. It's a sort of wonderful story about a female mathematician sort of making her way in the world against all sorts of prejudice from men. And it's also really a story of the study of mathematics um, in America in the 20th century. So I absolutely loved it. And I don't like maths. So I recommend (laughs) it very highly. But it's a high recommendation, isn't it? Sarah Hall's got short stories out. She's fab, isn't she? Oh, she's just so wonderful. I mean, when I wrote about this collection in the bookseller, I sort of said it's so hard to write about her writing because she's just so lyrical and beautiful and every sentence on a really granular level every word in every sentence has just been polished you know there's nothing extra it's all just stunning really I think Um, that's like your writing Alice oh well thank you very much (laughs) thank you very much Tom Um, and this is seven short stories um, and she is in fact I think probably one of the most lauded um, British short story writers because she's the only writer ever to be shortlisted three times for the BBC National Short Story Award. Mm. Um, And she's also been twice nominated for the Booker. So she really is a wonderful writer. And my favourite, I won't talk about all the stories, my favourite is the first one, which is called M. And it sort of starts in reality. And then as many of these stories do, sort of moves, has elements of science fiction and folklore and myth sort of all woven in. But it's about a female lawyer who, in a very unique way, decides that she's going to sort of wreak vengeance on abusive men. Um, I won't say any more because I think sometimes you shouldn't talk too much about the book. No, I think we all now want to know what that very unique way is. But if we want to know that, we have to read the book. (laughs) You do. So let's have a look at what's happening in non-fiction this month. Tom, what have you got for us? November's a bit of a funny month in non-fiction because a lot of the big Christmas books have come out uh, September, October. But there's a few gems that publishers put usually towards the beginning of the month and a few of them. But before I say... I should have uh, checked this. What's our uh, policy on swearing? I think we're okay. Okay. Where are you going, Tom? (laughs) (laughs) My favorite book of the month is Fucking Good Manners by Simon Griffin. As you might guess, it's an etiquette book. It's a book about how we should 
be better mannered to each other in this world of man spreading on the tube, of people looking on their phones in the cinema, and you know, generally talking when they shouldn't be talking. This you are is, such a grumpy old man. I, I am a grumpy you old really man. You really hate this the is cinema very... thing, don't you? You personally, oh, I remember this from God, before. Yes, I can't really enjoy the cinema until it starts because I'm always looking around <laughs> to see the lights of the screens that are on around me, and I'm ready to shout at people. But you had you did alter my behaviour because I remember, and this was years ago because my son's now ten. But I remember when he was I don't know three four, and we used to go to see these awful cartoon things, which I just couldn't stand. And I used to sneakily read a book on my phone, and I once told you that. And you were so revolted by my behaviour that it did make me see it in a different light. And from then on, I didn't get my phone out. I just slept through the cartoons. Uh, So you have affected change in this world, Tom. Excellent. That's great. Uh, And maybe Simon Griffin will affect change because his book is is quite funny. It's a nice little well-produced sort of small £9.99 hardback that looks really nice. Might be a till point smash. I'm predicting Mm -hmm. it'll be a till point smash. And he quite lightly tells us how to be better behave towards our fellow man and woman. And I think distilling it to three sort of section headings is put your fucking phone away. That's one of them. <laughs> Don't be fucking late and get out of the fucking way. I mean, broadly, yeah, you it's... You know, sensible you know, policies for a happier Britain, I'd say. Yeah, it's, just, it's just being... The overarching thing about the book is being aware about what other people are around you and not be so focused on yourself and just yeah. bring back that old time gentility. yeah. And if you don't, I'm going to fucking hit you. Yeah. <laughs> Simon Griffin also uh, wrote a book called Fucking Apostrophes, which is on punctuation, which, again, kind of obviously, he has a theme. Yeah. Um, but it's to use swearing in a really funny way to get people to kind of clue into things that perhaps might seem a bit fuddy-duddy. It's like segue, but we talked a lot last month about Philip Pullman's novel, The Secret Commonwealth, which I've been reading aloud to my son. There's a surprising amount of swearing in it, which Mm, I find very exhilarating. And at first I was sort of editing it out, reading it to my son, but now I've just gone for it. (laughs) I keep saying to him, don't say this at school. And if you do say it at school, don't say, mummy said it, say, Philip Philip Pullman Pullman says it. (laughs) Or say, daddy said it. (laughs) (laughs) Mummy's the swearer in our house, I'm afraid. So um, what else have we got? Tom, um, Raymond Briggs has written a graphic memoir. Tell us about that. Yeah, of course, Raymond Briggs is the amazing uh, children's author and illustrator of The Snowmen, most famously. He's written a book. It's not a straight memoir, really. It's a series of vignettes and illustrations, and they broadly all are about growing old and how much that sucks, mm-hmm. really much. And it's really funny and it's poignant. There's a really poignant um, bit about his late wife who died quite young. But a lot of it is about the minutiae and nitty-gritty of growing old. There's a whole series of pictures with text about how he finds it infuriating about how there needs to be three remote controls for his television now. (laughs) And he's just going off on one. And there's this amazing thing about a poem written on a uh, illustration of his own hand. And it's about aging and about how he hates his hands now because they have age spots and liver spots and they're gnarled. And it's mm. really beautiful. Do you think the grumpy old man within you is responding to the grumpy old man within maybe. him? Maybe. Maybe that's my spirit animal is a grumpy <laughs> old man. But it's not, it's not grumpy. It's really funny as well. It sounds wonderful. And, <laughs> and about a grumpy young man, um, there's Acid for the Children by Flea. Flea, of course, is the basis for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, Acid for the Children is broadly the um, parenting style of his stepfather. 
um, which, very liberal, very um, letting the kids do anything, including drugs. Um, but it's sort of a coming-of-age memoir about how he got hooked onto music and uh, recreational pharmaceuticals and growing up in Los Angeles and trying to find himself as an artist. Kind of annoyingly for Red Hot Chili Peppers fans, it ends when he's about age 20, when he meets Anthony Kiedis from The Singer. Yeah. So I imagine there's going to be a book too. But it's really a book about the growth of an artist. Uh, it's really fun, really funny. And so I recommend it even to non-hardcore Chili Peppers fans. Mm-hmm. It makes me feel slightly better about occasionally saying rude words to my son. Not as liberal, <laughs> obviously, as his stepfather. Um, tell us about what's happening in kids, uh, the Fowl Twins. Tell us about that. Actually, kids' books are kind of the opposite of um, nonfiction in that it's a huge month for kids with a, with a bunch of really big stars coming out with their books. So The Fowl Twins is the first spinoff from Owen Colfer's Artemis Fowl series featuring Artemis Fowl's twin brothers who get into various japes. So if you know the Artemis Fowl books, they're kind of vaguely futuristic with some sort of folklore thrown in. Um, And the two twins are left alone one night in a sort of Alexa-type program overseeing them called Nanny, N-A-N-N-I. They quickly get rid of Nanny and go through a whole bunch of japes and uh, scrapes with trolls and uh, an interrogating nun. It's hard to explain the plot, such as it is, but it's just really full of fun and excitement. And fans of the original Artemis Fowl will, will love it. You, you don't have to know the Artemis Fowl books to go into this in the first place. Um, and it's a big year coming up for uh, Colfer because the publisher's re-releasing all the Artemis Fowl books. There's an Artemis Fowl movie coming out May 2020. Um, there's going to be graphic novels, so he's going to be everywhere. Mm. And for um, people listening who are buying presents for nieces and nephews and all that sort of thing, what sort of age group are so we talking about? Broadly 8 to 12. Maybe. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Ada Lovelace Cracks the Code. This sounds brilliant. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's the first spin-off book from uh, the Rebel Girl series. I think Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, which kind of kickstarted this sort of nonfiction feminism trend in publishing. And these are full books on one person, whereas the previous books were anthologies with about 70 different amazing women. And Ada Lovelace, of course, was an early pioneer in computing and is probably one of the most influential people in computing ever. Um, I had no idea before I read this that she was Lord Byron's daughter. Mm. I had no clue. You hadn't made, you hadn't connected. Those I hadn't things. connected. Yeah, this she didn't know him because yeah. he, the marriage yeah, yeah. broke up when she was a baby, and then I think he died when she was quite young. But she wanted to be buried by him. Yeah. It's quite sweet, isn't it? Mm. But also, I have her in my mind as something to do with modernity because she's computers. Computers, yes. and yeah. he's so not. Yeah linked in my mind with computing. So. No, it's such a, it does make you realise how long ago it was. It yeah. does seem like an odd link, doesn't it? Yeah. And I will just say that, you know, I said it was a big month for kids. There's a new Wimpy Kid coming out, um, which came out yesterday from the day mm-hmm. we were recording this, um, which will probably sell about 100,000 copies its first week. The Dinky Donkey is coming out, which is the sequel to The Wonky Donkey, which was published originally about 2003. And then two and a half years ago, there was a video of a Scottish grandmother reading the book to her granddaughter and just breaking up into hysterics as she tries to read this kind of really silly (laughs) rhyme. And that went viral. And for the past two years, this book has been the best-selling picture book in Britain. That's amazing, Just an amazing story, like 15 years later. So the 
the next stinky donkey. Do you think all authors out there are thinking, how can I send my yeah, books yeah. to appealing grandmothers? <laughs> <laughs> well, they are. Publishers are sending books to this grandmother who now has a YouTube channel. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) And uh, probably the biggest is David Walliams' The Beast of Buckingham Palace, which comes out at the end of the month, which will probably sell close to 200,000 copies its first week and will probably be the Christmas number one. Well, one of those copies will probably end up in our house because my son loves him. And it's taking a different direction to previous books? Yeah, it's set in the future, kind of futuristic, yeah. Very nice. Thank you for all of that. I've been reading a graphic novel, which is very unusual for me. Well, it's a non-fiction book, actually, but I couldn't work out what you call a graphic novel that's non-fiction. Is there a word? Well, if it's a memoir, graphic memoir, graphic history. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's a book about gender, mm. um, and it's written by Meg John Barker and illustrated by Jules Sheila. And I saw Meg John Barker speak at the BA conference and then wanted to read more of their work. And I'm really enjoying it. And I must say, I tend to not be, I'm not really there with the graphic format. Uh, I'm a word person, usually not a pitch person. And I've surprised myself by how much I've been loving it. And a couple of novels I really enjoyed this month, The Vanished Bride by Bella Ellis, um, which is a pseudonym because it's actually Rowan Coleman, who's an author I really enjoy. And this is a very lovely thing. The Bronte sisters have turned detective up in the moors at Haworth. I just can't get enough of Haworth and the Brontes, and this is great fun. And Oligarchy by Scarlett Thomas, who I love. I find she, she's a very fiery writer. And this is um, a Russian oligarch's daughter is sent to a posh boarding school um, and mayhem ensues. So there's that. And, of course, the book that we're going to be playing out with at the end of this episode, Be My Guest by Priya Basil, I picked it up because it's a beautiful little object, blue and yellow with very beautiful end papers. So I thought I'll have a sort of this light read about food. I thought it was going to be. But it's actually much more than that. It's about the nature of hospitality, what it means to be a guest, what it means to be the host, the fact that these days the word hospitality is more linked to the hospitality industry than it is with any deeper mm. significance. Loads of fascinating stuff. She was born in London with an Indian Sikh background, grew up in Kenya, now lives in Berlin. Lots of reflections about race, even some non-annoying writing on Brexit. And I think it's quite difficult to write about Brexit in a non-annoying way. But she pulls it off rather magnificently. So... It, it's lovely. I want everyone to read it. I would go as far as to say she's the flavour of my month. Oh, boo. <laughs> Not to the book, but to your... Yeah, to court. my awful joke. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, thank you very much, uh, as ever, Tom and Alice. Thank Thanks you. very much. Now it's time to talk to Derek Owusu. He's a writer and poet from North London. Until recently, he was one third of the Mostly Lit podcast and he edited and contributed to SAFE on British Black Men Reclaiming Space. That Reminds Me is his first solo work and is published by Stormzy's imprint, Murky Books. Derek, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Tell us how you got into literature in the first place. I was studying exercise science at the time at the University of Bolton. And my research methods lecturer told us to go off and read some Dickens because he said Dickens is right and it's so convoluted that it will get you in a state of mind ready to read research papers. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, he was probably just joking, but I thought, okay, let me try and read some of these books. So I picked up Dickens and they were quite thick, the ones in the library. So I put them down and I picked up a short story collection by D.H. Lawrence. And I read a story called, it was St. Saint, Moise Saint about a horse. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a Welsh name. I don't think I'm pronouncing it properly. And I remember reading it and just like everything fell away from me. I was really into the story. I loved what they were talking about. It's kind of like, you know, D.H. Lawrence's tropes about nature having its own like 
existence and mm. all those kind of things and all of that was embodied in the horse um and i was like wow like i'm missing out so i, I picked up another short story called the virgin and the gypsy by dh lawrence read that and i was hooked on the classics mm -hmm. like from then so i was reading oscar wilde i was reading ian forster hg wells i remember the first time i saw ian forster's where angels fear to tread and i just thought this is the most brilliant title for a novel i've ever seen <laughs> in my life like it's, it's amazing but i didn't know i was reading the classics i thought i was just reading like contemporary books mm -hmm. so oscar wilde these people, i thought they were still alive i didn't know they would they died like a hundred years ago and it's only when i was talking to a friend who was studying english literature at the time at the university of manchester and I was like, have you read this book, this book? And she was looking at me like, why are you reading the classics? And I was like, what do you mean the classics? Uh -huh. And she explained it to me. And I feel like that's, that's given me an advantage uh, when it comes to certain things as well. The fact that I started with the classics and I wasn't put off by them. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I was like, okay, I want to study literature. But I couldn't change course because it was too expensive. I called them up and they said, we'll fund your first year, but you have to fund the next two. Mm -hmm. I couldn't afford to do that. So I thought, okay, forget it. Just finish my degree and just be reading on the side. But then my friend would always come back talking about the amazing discussions they had in their lectures. So I thought, right, i got to get in on this. <laughs> um, so I just started sneaking into the lectures, listening to um, the lecture talk. When it was time for like some questions at the end, I would always be putting my hand up. People would look back like, who the hell is that? You know, it was, it was great. I really liked it. Yeah, it was that's so fun. lovely. I bet people were delighted to have you, weren't they? I mean, to be fair, it was such a big like lecture hall. They probably didn't. Probably didn't notice. I've taught undergraduates and some of them like look at Facebook all the time. So if yeah. I had someone who wanted to be there, I'd be Yeah, I'd exactly. Be I think it was the kind of questions that I was asking that they were kind of like, why are you asking that question sort of thing? But yeah. <laughs> um, that reminds me, is a novel in verse. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah. Tell us how it came about. So I started writing this. So I was in a, I don't mind saying, I was in a mental health facility at the time. And I was just kind of writing, um, I was writing poems. And then I just started, I wanted to kind of figure out what, would lead a person to have a mental breakdown or develop a particular kind of personality disorder. And I was spending a lot of time with the nurses there because there's nurses there 24-7. I used to sit down and talk to them and they'll tell me about borderline personality disorder, how it develops. A lot of the people who've developed it have been in foster care before, mm -hmm. been in some sort of care, um, had some sort of trauma when they was a child. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try and do this in like kind of memory. So I wasn't really writing a novel in verse at the time. I was just writing things. Mm -hmm in chronological order that I think would do that. So I created the character K. Basically, I created him in order to d destroy him. Mm -hmm. And then maybe afterwards, he would find some redemption. Yeah, and that's how it came about. So I was just, you yeah, know, I was just I was just writing loads and loads and loads. I mean, the book would be a lot bigger than it is now if um, obviously my editor, Tom, didn't say, okay, we need to take this out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had, I had tons and tons of verses. Um, but um, yeah, it was great. It was, it was a really fun process, actually, mm -hmm. going through it, especially when we're sitting with my editor, Tom. And he's giving me some advice and he's like, mm, Derek, you know, this is bordering on the cliche. At first you kind of recoil, like, what do you mean is it? But then it's like, yeah. okay, yeah, fair enough, you're right. I think it's a good way. Um, I've just been teaching memoir writing and I think a good way to write is just accumulate loads of material and then don't hold back. You know, don't think about shape and structure and then look at what you've got. Absolutely. That's exactly what I did. Yeah. yeah. And um, tell us about Kay. You say about him, broken before he knew what peace was, homeless before he knew what family was. Tell us a bit about Kay. So Kay is essentially someone who grew up in foster care with a white middle class family, but he didn't realise he was with a family that wasn't his own. Mm -hmm. And then when his obviously biological mum comes to take him away and brings him to London, there's just kind of like, I haven't made it overtly like an identity crisis, but the things that he picks up on the details that he notices you can tell he's trying to fit in in mm -hmm. some way and so I just yeah I just take him through his life you know 
the birth of his brother. Um, of course, he's, I guess, I don't want to call it sexual awakening, but the first time he feels sexualized mm -hmm. by someone who's a lot older than him. Through to when the borderline personality starts manifesting itself. Because a lot of people who have the disorder, they have a string of, a long string of relationships that just never work. And I've made sure that I made them nameless just mm -hmm. to kind of get that effect across that mm -hmm. he's just going from one person to the other. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, and then, you know, alcoholism as well. I made sure I put that in there as well. I wrote very detailed descriptions of like self-harm as well. And I did that because I feel like people need to get over the fact that some people self-harm mm -hmm. and you don't understand why they do it. Okay, fair enough, you know. But then afterwards, there's still the person you know, who's done that to themselves. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you should feel some sort of sympathy for them mm -hmm. because they're not doing it for attention. Do you know what I mean? Um, they're doing it because there's something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. Usually they, they, usually it's an emotional pain that they have and then they use self-harming to kind of release that pain. So I wanted people to, of course, it might, it probably is uncomfortable for people to read, but it's just after, it's once you get past that and then you see that, okay, this is someone who's really troubled mm -hmm. and you start to feel empathy for them. Mm -hmm. Would you read as the author's note right at the beginning? I found this really sure. fascinating. This is the story of Kay. If you believe your life to be as fictitious as Kay's, if you find yourself within the pages of this book, then you are holding the pen and not me. That gave me a nice little gasp when I, <laughs> I opened the book and I read the author's note and I thought, I am in for this ride. <laughs> tell, us a bit, tell us a bit about it. Well, I think because there's so many similarities between myself and Kay, um, on the surface mm -hmm. anyway, um, I think that it was just very necessary for me to make that distinction. You know, even with people who've, re who've read like early drafts and all of that kind of thing, when they're talking to me about the events, they're like, okay, so when this happened to you, and I'm just like, no, no, no this didn't happen to me. This mm -hmm. happened to Kay. And it was hard for people to, do you know what I mean? Because they, they think it's a memoir. It's not. It's a novel in, in verse. You know, I, I made a lot of these things up. But yeah, yeah, of course, I based a lot of the events and on um, on some of my experiences. But I'd say about 85% of this is all fiction. Mm -hmm. um, and it was definitely important for me to, to get that across. Do you think that's a sort of a self-protective distancing mechanism? Or was it a creative urge? Or I think it was just a creative urge. I don't think... I'm very open. I'm very happy to speak about things, about my life and things that have happened. Um, so it wasn't about creating distance. Um, it was just kind of just so people read it in the proper mind frame, mm -hmm. not reading it thinking I'm reading about Derek Owusu. Um, can you, uh, I thought you might read a little bit for us, would you? Yeah, um, sure. I absolutely. want to try and get across to our listeners the, you know, the poetic, um, fragmentary nature of it. Okay. I watch a little black boy standing outside a shop, pretending not to be bothered by his white friends inside spending money. I walk over and give him a two pound coin and remind him to eat whatever he buys before he gets home. My mum wouldn't approve, so I know his mum won't either. Wide, his eyes look like mine, and I fall in love with how grateful everything about him becomes. Safe, man, he says. He smells like cocoa butter and dax. And I follow his scent up to the door and watch as he stands in front of the colourful sugars with snappy names. I know he's savouring being spoilt for choice. I'm sure when he takes a bite of whatever he buys, I too will be satisfied. And a memory comes back to me of the first time I held a pound coin given to me by a stranger who smelled like cigarettes and blue magic. That's so beautiful. Um, I was reading that earlier on and just uh, completely choked up. I think it's the, the thought of the expression on the little boy's face. He captured it so wonderfully. Um, would you tell us about the role of Anansi in the novel? Yeah, so um, in Ghanaian um, mythology, obviously I'm from Ghana, 
Anansi is the god of stories. Mm-hmm. And of course, he's a spider. And the legend goes that in order to become the god of stories, he had to give um, Nyame, who was the sky god, four gifts, four particular gifts. I forget what they all are now. And then he became the god of stories. So this is me literally bringing that kind of mythology to life. Mm-hmm. And Kay is telling Anansi his story so that Nyame, the sky god, will have some sort of sympathy for him, release him from the, the, the pain of living that he's experiencing. And it was important for me to have some, you know, Ghanaian mythology in there, part of the Ghanaian culture. A lot of, there's a lot of Ghanaian culture in there. There's words in there that I haven't even bothered to translate because mm-hmm. I just thought, well, you can just Google it if you really want to know <laughs> what the word means, you know. And yeah, that, that was very important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it is hard reading at times. You know, the distress is vivid on the page, but um, I felt it was a book just f- completely full of love. I finished it feeling joyous. Yeah. Um, was that your... Was that your intent to bring your reader to that place? Absolutely. Um, I don't want to give away the end, but what happens in the end is I wanted people to feel like, you know, no matter what happens, Mm. you can still love somebody. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. (laughs) Um, What's next for you, Derek? I have an idea for my third book. My second book is Teaching My Brother to Read which I haven't started writing yet, and my editor asks me every time he sees me, so how's the, how's, <laughs> how's the book coming? I'm just Tell like, us oh. a bit about it. It's intriguing that you're uh, getting your brother to read. I now see reading, I see literature as a way to really free people from themselves, open their minds and all those kind of things, broaden their horizons, the same goes. And my brother is not a reader. You know, he's 11 years younger than me. He'll prefer to be on the street than reading a book. I really felt like I could, I'd be doing him a favour if I got him into literature. Mm-hmm. So I remember once I tried to get him to read, I gave him To Kill a Mockingbird to read. He started crying um, because he didn't want to read it. <laughs> you know, he <it> was, <laughs> was angry at me for making him read. So I thought, okay, let me not force it because he's just going to hate li- mm-hmm. literature for the rest of his life. But now I came to a time where I was like, okay, let me try again. You know, I said, look, let's do a podcast together. You and I will talk about books. He, he wasn't really buying it. So I said, look, I'll give you £20 to read each book and then we discuss it. <laughs> He was like, mm, I don't know. I was like, all right, I'll give you £50. Mm. And then he was like, all right. <laughs> like, Let's do it. So I'm paying him £50 per book. There's 12 books. So what happens is he's going to read it. Then I will read it. And then he'll give me his interpretation of the book without having seen any kind of reviews or anything yeah. like that. And then I'll give him like the um, generally accepted perspective on that book. And then we'll meet in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds great. I will look forward to reading it. No, I look forward no to pressure. writing it. Sounds yeah. like you're getting enough of that from the editor. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. And now I'm going to hand you over to Nigel for Meet the Indie. We'll be talking to Patrick Neal from Jaffe and Neal. Thank you, Cathy. So, good morning. Patrick, are you there? Good morning, I am. I'm in Stowe. I'm in Jaffe and Neal's Stowe, our lovely Stowe shop. I very, feel very fortunate on this beautiful sunny day. Oh, well, that's fantastic. And, you know, for for them who don't know you, Patrick, yeah, sure. you say you're lovely stow uh, in the world shop. Yeah. You therefore have more than one shop. So, yes. Yeah, so Polly Jaffe, my partner, and I, we have um, our wonderful Chipping Norton shop, which we opened in 2000. And uh, then we opened Stowe in 2016. So two shops, busy people. Was it really 2016? I never know whether we're supposed to say 2016 or 2016, whichever, one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Three years ago. Yeah. I remember when you opened that. It was November. Yeah, November. We we had a whistle stop, you know, just before Christmas in my Waterstones training 
taught me that was the right way to do it. I don't know if it is or not. But <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I don't know if it is or, or not, but no. Waterstones are still doing that because back where I live in Guildford, they're swapping yeah. over from one side of the high street to the other and they're doing it in rapid, quick time. Well, it's supposed I, to be I, opening in two days or something. Yeah, ridiculous. there's this obsession with well, as soon as you're paying rent, you must open. Yeah. But actually, I think, I think actually sometimes it's better just to take a little bit more time and get it all sorted. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a man who was brought low in Christmas 2016. So, so what was your your motivation for for opening the second shop? Because I mean, I mean, Chipping Norton's a long established shop now, very well. Yeah, known. and I mean, Chipping Chipping Norton is the mothership, and and Stowe is a satellite. There's no doubt about it, and and that you know we're we're so lucky and proud of Chipping Norton. But um, we've done the bookshop cafe thing, and it it it, it fits a particular model, and there's a, a particular group of people that seem to like hanging out in, in an independent bookshop with a cafe and we're very happy to serve them coffee and cake and um, sell them as many books as we possibly can. Yeah. <laughs> That's the plan anyway. And um, there seem to be, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm helping mentor and um, talk to other indies and there seem to be a, a number more opening up and that's really, really heartening because I think, you know, back in 2011 when I was, president of the ba things look pretty pretty rough i think <laughs> yeah and and for listeners who don't know these these acronyms the ba is the booksellers oh, association yeah, sorry, not, yeah, not british yeah. airways although maybe you were president <laughs> oh, then, yeah. of that i have no idea you know. <laughs> no, no no i think you know definitely happier working for the booksellers association than, B, than ba yeah and what's it been like over the years? Have you had rocky periods? So starting in 2000, you know, you had the, the nasty crash in 2008. No, I mean 2008, because I, I really remember Alan Giles, our, our, the MD of Waterstone, saying, you know, books are recession-proof and, and, and feeling confident about that. For, you know, I started for Waterstones in 88. Oh. <laughs> and, and I felt, yes, Alan's right, books are recession-proof. But I think 2008 proved that, well, or it was just such a bad crash that even books took a hit yeah i mean it's been tough from the you know so supermarkets discounting amazon ebooks and now really the crisis of the high street so it's it's not it's not easy but it does appear that bookshops seem to be doing better than other retailers so now it's about making sure the high street is healthy it's not it's not just about the book industry it's you know there's no point you being wonderful if your high street's dying so um that does mean we've got to do you know more work in our communities which we which we like doing but um you know <laughs> well it's that, it's that essential thing isn't it you know a healthy high street needs a, a good bookshop yeah, and it needs a pub and it needs yeah, yeah, no. I'm sure and I, there are other things, but those seem to, those well, are I enough. Think, I mean, we, in, certainly in Chipping Norton, we're very lucky. People move out of London and, and, and they walk into our shop with estate agents' details, and quite often they buy in the area and then they say, oh, we'll, you know, and then they become lifelong customers. And, you know, that, but they, they, they and they often say, you're part of the reason we moved here. And I, I'm not, you know, I don't like bragging, but, that, you know, I've heard that said enough. I've heard that said enough times now for me to have to accept it as a fact. Oh, you you, <laughs> well, should, be, I mean, you I, should be hearing. You, I must say, Kathy's I think it's crying. entirely true because whenever I go to the Chipping Norton Literary <laughs> Festival and hang out in Jaffa O'Neill, I always want to move there. Um, yeah. and, I, and I quite often say, like, if I hadn't moved to Cornwall, I was agitating to move to well, Chippy. Uh, well, we are, Polly and I both love the sea and we are as far from the sea as you can possibly yeah. be. And so sooner or later, we will open a bookshop on the coast. So we know all about your bookshop now. So let's let's now kind of focus on books. And 
Um, and what's, what's selling really well at the moment for you? Well, I think the big publishers are doing a really, really good job now. So, you know, the likes of obviously Margaret Atwood and Bill Bryce. And, and I mean, David Cameron is our best-selling book. And I, you know, I, I must, you know, I must express that. And we have signed copies. So <laughs> yet, yet again, that, you know, those are the facts. And that, yeah. <laughs> he's a local, isn't he? He's a, he's, no, yeah, he, he's been a great customer. And we've recommended our, his summer reading for, well, for since 2000 now. So, so yeah, he, he's, a, he's a good customer. And uh, it's, it's, been, it's been fun over the years. But this year has been particularly Fun. I, t- I tell you, I'm working really hard not to throw in some political no, jokes. I, I should I'm just, leaving I, it. No, I'm I leaving should it. move. I uh, should move on. I should move on. Sorry, because I'm I'm making that harder for you, and I completely <laughs> understand, Nigel. Um, and we are we are dealing with a lot of comments, but it is our best-selling book, so that's. A, you know, we're always looking for that quirky book that you know, not quite wonky the donkey, but we haven't quite found that yet. And I think I do think the big publishers really, you know, with, with the with the likes of Bryson and Atwood and and um, you know the heavyweights it's harder to get that um that sneaky one through um so yeah i'm desperately looking looking for those we love our what i call it our country matters section so our country you know the rural writing that yeah um you know robert mcfarlane etc roger deacon and so we 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 sell a lot of those sort of books and i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to walk over because i cannot remember the title <laughs> oh, i, th- I it, thought you were trying to avoid the customers no 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 no, no. Oh. It, we are the charlie maxi the boy the mole the fox and the horse is ju- it's it's a sort of a a milne book mm. for any age it is published by penguin um ad, but it is a it's an absolute winner and i think so that that for us is doing very well indeed tell you what in that genre there, there sure. was there was one i um i got from granter books the other day yeah. uh, philip marsden's um the summer isles absolutely we sold yeah we sold a good handful of that already that's you know a spot on yeah yeah no i mean i'm, I'm a big philip marsden fan but I, i'm delighted that it's, uh, he's selling as well kathy's face is doing it oh no he's on about nature books again <laughs> <laughs> it really wasn't <laughs> i saw him speak at cheltenham literature uh, festival yeah. with dan richards they were both talking about their books dan richards is called outposts and um oh yes yes yeah, yes and they're both very good and it was a very good event nice well the the last word on the nature books again i ordered six of a history of the forestry commission and when it came in i sort of thought what have you done you, you <laughs> idiot and they all just sold so quickly so we've, we've had to real and it is, so it's the it's the forestry commission 1919 to 2019 and um <laughs> yeah i haven't it. actually read it yet but um i was so delighted that my my astute buying had paid off. I'd love it if that was under everybody's Christmas tree. Yeah, that, <laughs> that could be the quirky Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's good enough. For, it's it's ticking over, and we like do love books that sell one a month. You know, I mean, obviously at Christmas we want to, you know, we want to pile them high. But I do like, you know, good perennials that just keep going because I think publishing is is getting more into the sort of craze and then drop off, and I I think that's a bit sad sometimes. What in a kind of the the way that film works that you you have your monsters yeah no i think you know the way certainly the way midlist fiction is going these books are being read in enormous quantities and then but then they'll be out of print in you know three or four years and that that seems odd to me but that does seem to be the way it's going yeah and you know outside of the nature ones so if there was a kind of almost like a a typical book one that is just a steady seller that sells through you in your part of the world um that wouldn't necessarily sell equally well in tooting or scarborough or anywhere else well we 
I, I'm, 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 I'm embarrassed, if I'm, but now I'm going to go for it. Um, so we do very well with a, a book called Shepherd's Huts and Living Vans. So it's a little um, photographic book. And I think it's this aspirational thing. I, I think the majority of people who buy it don't actually end up with a shepherd's hut. Yeah. But they would like to. And, um, and I don't blame them. I don't blame them. When you said you were embarrassed, I wondered what you were going to admit to. <laughs> no, well, I think... I the mean, illustrated we, Karma Sutra, perhaps. But, but I, have to, I have to say, we, we... I mean, it does yet again come down to our recommendation because we've got some great booksellers and so they, they read some gritty stuff. So breathe the nasty 1950s um, pea soup novel that Dave has been recommending. We've sold armloads of that. So it's Dominic Donald's Breathe, which is a sort of London 1950s pot boiler mm. um that's doing really really well and um the eric vulliard order of the day which i really loved doesn't seem like a chipping north north Stoke sort of book but yeah we're selling that that's selling really really well so it, it's great that our recommendation can push through the normal what you'd expect well that's the nice thing about a shop like yours and i'm guessing you sort of have quite a few people working there who are part-time on different yeah, days of the week and that absolutely, sort of thing. Um, absolutely, yeah. And, and it's, such a, it's such a great moment when, you know, you, I mean, you, you own the bookshop, but it's such a great moment when somebody walks in and says, oh, I wasn't looking for you, I was looking for. <laughs> and that the first, you're, you're offended the first time it happens, and then the second time it happens, you realise that's a, it's a brilliant compliment that you found somebody yeah. great to work for you and they really are doing a great job. So, um, yeah, that's, that's good news when it happens. Okay, so if I'm sort of just about to leave the shop and I am daring, daring to head out without a book in my hand. Okay, I've had five pieces of cake. But, you know, yeah, yeah, you know. well, you've had so, so you, four or five shots of coffee. Yeah, and yeah. So <laughs> you're going to haul me back in. Yeah. And and what, do you, what are you going to make sure that I buy? Well, I, I'm afraid it's going to have to be Richard Power's overstory still, which I know, I mean, it's almost been out in payback for a year now, but it's still the most... And I was delighted to see that Robert McFarlane was talking about it in The Guardian on Saturday, just gone. So it's, it's a really, really important environmental but thrilling, thrilling book about some activists, some environmental activists, and something horrible goes wrong and their lives are torn apart. Um, so I would really recommend Richard Powers' Overstory. Okay, I'm going to have to stop me there, Patrick. Guess what book I'm reading at the moment? <laughs> you <laughs> I tell one. You? Bloody hell, you're good, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> that was very good. We were just talking about it. That was very uh, good. Yeah, I'm struggling a bit because it, I read it. I mean, I think I read it two years ago now, but and I've read a lot of good stuff since then. But, uh, yeah, it really is still a very, very special book. Okay, well, that, therefore, dear public, that's that's a combo <laughs> recommendation from Frank and good, from you've me. You've made my day, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. And and lastly, what's coming up? We Kind of the Christmas rush is starting to pick up now. So uh, what's coming up over the next few weeks, months, where you're thinking, oh, that's, that's going to be cracking, looking forward to that one coming in? Well, pretty much everything's here. Um so, we, as I say, the Le Carre is, you know, the, yeah. the Le Carre is great. Um, I, it'll be really interesting to see if the Erin Morganston does well. She, who wrote The Night Circus, her new hardback's just come in called The, the Starless Sea. So that'll be really interesting. Um, I do really want to read the Zadie Smith essays. I do, I do really want to read. I haven't got, got to that yet. It is a good year. When it's a good year, I then worry about snow because I've got to have something to worry about. And we... <laughs> Chipping Norton just stops functioning whenever it snows because the road because it's pretty steep and, and um, hilly, and so that that's my worry because we have to dig a lot of pathways and try and get customers in through the door as best we can. 
I'm just now thinking of a new element to the podcast. You know, we can include our own weather forecast. Absolutely. In there. Yeah. yeah, no, I, yeah, that would be very helpful. Patrick, thank you so much for telling us all about the shop, about the books. It, because of people like you, Nigel and Cathy, the book trade is a fabulous place to work. So, so oh, thank you. Oh, bless having. you. No, it is. I, I, you know, 1988 I started and I'm still enjoying it. So. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> so, everyone, if you're in Stowe in the World or if you're in Chipping Norton, now you know where to go. Jaffe and Neil, go and say Patrick and then say, I didn't want to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Take care, Patrick. Bye. We're nearly at the end of the show, but before we say goodbye, let's get out and about. Nigel's been finding events for us on Book Gig. What have you got for us, Nigel? Oh, I've got a lot. I've got a kind of south to north thing going on. Go uh, for it. For them who don't know, Book Gig is the bookseller's uh, book events listing site. Just tap Book Gig into um, a search engine of your choice and you'll find it. So, south to north. Michael Morpurgo is out. He's out and about a lot in November. And the one I picked up on was 16th of November in Exeter. Then moving up country to London, an absolute cracker on the 1st of December. It's Nadia Hussein chatting to Emma Freud about her memoir, Finding My Voice. And if anyone deserves their national treasure tag, then I think Nadia's the one. We're now up into Yorkshire and we're in Harrogate. And I always get the pronunciation wrong, so forgive me. Uh, but Owen Colfer, who Tom was talking about earlier, he's in Harrogate. I haven't got the date for that, but you'll find it on BookGeek. And then Edinburgh. If you sort of scan down on the page on BookGig, you'll find we've got a city focus on Edinburgh over November, December dates. And there's a lot going on up there. Anna James, who worked with us on the bookseller, she's talking about Pages & Co. The great, wonderful Nigel Slater. He's uh, talking on the 27th. Erin Morgenstern, who uh, often crops up. I think Patrick Mm -hmm. from uh, Jeffrey Neal was talking about her new book. Jay Rayner, who was one of our judges on the British Book Awards. Lovely bloke. He's in Edinburgh as well. So there's a whole bundle of stuff in Edinburgh, right? So I've done my south to north thing. And I suddenly remember, we never say this, but all of the books that we talk about, you'll find reviews from them on our review segregation site, Books in the Media. Again, just tap it into Google or whatever. Don't click on the first one because that's an ad. Um, <laughs> so we'll end up paying for it. So get, you'll see it there. You'll find it first and then just go down the page a bit. Um, but they're all there. There's thousands of book reviews there. But all the books that we uh, cover, we always make sure that we've captured the reviews for those. So there you go. I did that quickly, didn't I? You did, you did. Um, I wanted to mention Clean Prose, which is a new writerly space in East London. Um, I'm teaching a masterclass in memoir writing there on the 7th of December. And what I think is particularly lovely about this place is that for every bought ticket, so for everyone who buys a ticket to this masterclass, and indeed there are lots of people doing classes there, Clean Prose donate one to someone for whom cost is a barrier. So oh, that's a scheme. Nice yeah, you can email them. And then they will allocate the, the tickets. Isn't that a nice thing? It is that's a, nice a good thing. deed in a naughty world, isn't it? It is. And I've heard a lot of good things about that place. Uh, yeah, I've yet to go there, but it yeah. looks amazing. Yeah. And they did a great Muses photo shoot with um, Sarah Collins, who I adore, the author of The Confessions of Franny Langton, yeah. one of my favourite books yeah, of the yeah, year. Yeah. So yeah. in general, a good place. So let's hope that everybody goes up and down the country doing all of those things. All of them. I want all, all of them. them. All of those things we, in November. We'll, we'll get a little book of stamps and you have to say that you've been there. <laughs> <laughs> So that's it for now. Our next podcast will be in December. Thank you very much to Tom Tivnan, Alice O'Keefe, Derek Abusu, Patrick Neal, and of course, my co host, confrere, and partner in crime, Nigel Roby. Shucks. If you'd like to talk to us, you can tweet at the bookseller or come to our Facebook page or just email us on podcast at thebookseller.com. We're available on iTunes, so please subscribe. And you can listen to us as you may be doing right now at thebookseller.com. 
And now we're going to hear an extract from the wonderful Be My Guest, Reflections on Food, Community and the Meaning of Generosity. This is written and read by Priya Basil and is out now from Canongate Gate Books. And that will end the 11th edition of the Bookseller Podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thanks for listening and happy reading. We begin as guests, every single one of us, helpless little creatures whose every need must be attended to, who for a long time can give nothing or very little back, yet who, in the usual run of things, nevertheless insinuate ourselves deep into the lives of our carers and take up permanent residence in their hearts. Our early dependence is indulged in the expectation that we, in turn, will become dependable. Maybe reaching adulthood really means learning to be more host than guest, to take care more than, or at least as much as, to be taken care of. Implicit in this outlook, it seems to me, is still an assumption that each person will, eventually, become a parent, the ultimate role at least in cultures where the nuclear family is considered the foundation of society. A role I decided to forego. A choice that left me questioning what my part can be in the life play of hospitality. Whether you have your own kids or not, it's hard to avoid the general shift from guest to host, which is the hallmark of maturity. This switch is perhaps most challenging in relation to our parents, from whom we can't help forever expecting certain protections and ministrations. Nobody in the world welcomes us quite like our parents do. The reception, if we're lucky, is a simultaneous cosseting and taking for granted, an experience that's at best comforting and exasperating in equal measure. 